Thank you. You may be seated. The children are dismissed. And as the children leave, I'll invite you to find Mark chapter 9 in your Bibles. Mark chapter 9 will be beginning at verse 30. And as you find Mark chapter 9 beginning at verse 30, I want you to think about, I want you to imagine with me for a minute, um, think about whoever is the greatest Bible teacher that you've learned from throughout your, your years. So it could be someone that you actually knew, uh, some teacher when you were a child, or more likely probably the most talented, the most gifted teachers are people you've heard on the radio or seen on TV. Some of you might be thinking about Billy Graham. I put out there on Facebook who are the, the people you listen to the most, you know, Bible teacher-wise, and uh, Dawn put Alistair Begg. I know some of you listen to Alistair Begg. He has this great Scottish accent. I feel like everything would be better if I had a Scottish accent, but I don't. So let's just use Alistair Begg as an example. He pastors a big church, uh, I think it's in Cleveland, and uh, he has a radio broadcast called Truth for Life and a podcast, and uh, he's just a well-known guy, very good teacher. I would recommend him to you to listen to, but we'll use him as an example. So let's say he he is a really important teacher to you. Imagine you get a call from him tomorrow morning while you're at work or at home or wherever you're going to be tomorrow morning around 10 a.m. You get a call from Alistair Begg and you hear a Scottish accent on the phone. I'm not going to try to do an imitation of it. And uh, I disappointed somebody. Is that Judy? I'll do one. Oh, it's Ashlyn. Oh, okay. You too. We have to separate those two. Um, so he calls you at work or at home, wherever you are, and invites you to come up to Cleveland. And he has selected you and 11 other people from around the nation, and he wants you 12 to come and join him. And for three years, you are going to live with him and his family, and he's bought a bus so that anywhere he travels, you're going to travel with him. You 12 are going to go to work with him. If he officiates a funeral, you're going to go with him. A wedding, you're going to go with him. If he goes on vacation with his family, you're going to go with him. Um, When he goes to the doctor for his colonoscopy, you're going to go. Um, anywhere he goes, you're going to go. And for the next three years, he is going to make you 12 the focus of his ministry. He'll still, he'll still do his other things. He'll still preach at his church on Sundays, and you'll be there. And he'll still, you know, minister to his flock, the crowds that he has amassed. But you 12 are going to be the focus. And so you'll hear his public teaching. But after the public teaching, he'll take you with him home over lunch, and he'll explain the deeper things. He'll go deeper with you 12 than anyone else. And along the way, as things come up, as things you're thinking about come up, he'll address those, and he'll teach you from God's word about those things. Imagine having that kind of access, that kind of in-depth discipleship relationship with a great teacher. That's what the disciples had with Jesus. As we read about their experience with Jesus in the Gospels, that's what they had. Only Jesus obviously was much superior to Alistair Begg, because he's Jesus. He, Alistair Begg may know the word well, but Jesus, in some mysterious sense, is the word. And so as we pick up here in Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 30, that's the scene. Jesus is with his 12. He's just gotten done ministering to crowds, and now he's going forward with his 12, who are the main focus of his ministry. And we read in verse 30 of Mark chapter 9, they, being that whole 
crew of the 12 disciples and Jesus, they went on from there where Jesus had just healed a demonized boy. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And Jesus did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So here we are some, somewhat eavesdropping on Jesus' private teaching with the twelve. And we're going to just highlight two lessons. There's many lessons Jesus taught them throughout the Gospels. Today we're just going to highlight two. And this first one we just read. Jesus was going to die and rise again. Jesus was going to die and rise again. Now look at these verses and note Jesus' focus here. He could have very easily stayed where he had just healed that demonized boy and set up an exorcist shop, an exorcism shop where everybody could bring their demonized people and he would just free demonized people all day long from 9 to 5, earn a good living, and go home. He could have stayed there and had a very successful demon-freeing ministry, but he didn't. It says he went on from there. He could have stayed and had crowds of people. Because back there where he was when he healed the demonized boy, there were crowds of people swarming around him, wanting to learn from him, wanting to be near him. He could have maintained those crowds and built those crowds, but he didn't. It says he did not want anyone to know where he went next. He wanted to escape the crowd so he could focus on the twelve. All through Mark, we're almost frustrated by the fact that he's able to heal anybody he wants to. Any sickness, he can heal it. And no matter how demon-possessed the person, he has authority over the demons and can free them. And yet it never seems to be his first priority. It's always something he's just sort of doing as it comes up, but he's always moving towards some other priority. He's always focused on something else. Not the demons, not the sicknesses, not the crowds. But what he teaches them in verse 31. Verse 31 was Jesus' focus. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise again. That is the center thrust of Jesus' teaching to the twelve. That is his focus. Jesus Christ's purpose and Christianity's power is the historical fact that he died and rose again. That was Christ's purpose, and that's Christianity's power, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you, I've been with you seven years, Lord willing, I'll be with you 70 more years. In 70 more years, I'll be 133 years old. Medical technology is advancing. That could happen. So let's say I'm with you until I'm 133 years old and I have all those Sundays and all those teaching times and all those counseling times and all those individual interactions. If you only remembered one thing from all that, I hope it will be this, that Jesus Christ died for you so that your sins could be forgiven, so that you could be reconciled to God. 
And he arose from the dead. He's not a dead hero. He's a living Lord. So if you forget everything else I ever have said, ever will say, remember that. That's the most important thing. That's what Paul wrote about in the passage we read at the beginning as of first importance. He said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That is of first importance. Now, in their culture and in our culture, we have other things that seem to be of first importance, but aren't. So if you were back then in their culture, it would have been easy to think that healing all these sick people surely would be of first importance for a man like Jesus who has supernatural healing power. And yet he did not make that his number one priority. You would think back then that surely freeing these demonized people would be of first importance. But Jesus didn't make that his number one priority. He would do it. It was important and he cared about the people, but it was never his main goal. He left many people unhealed. He left many people still enslaved to demons because he was marching toward the cross. And he would not get sidetracked even by good things. Of first importance. In our culture, there are many things that we are tempted to think are of first importance. You know, I was talking to someone the other day that does not come from a Christian worldview. And I was asking, you know, what do you know about Christianity? And pretty much everything they knew about Christianity centered on our stance against LGBT agenda. That was pretty much what they knew. We do not agree with the LGBT agenda. Now, that's true. But that's not of first importance. And I think it's a real trick of our enemy if that's the main thing that non-Christians know about Christianity. The main thing non-Christians need to know about Christianity is not that we have a good God who is, has designed gender and sexuality in a good, specific way. That's great and it's important, and I hope that everybody does come to learn that. But first and foremost is Jesus Christ died for our sins and arose from the grave. For every one thing we say about a social issue, may we say at least three things about the gospel. Let's keep of first importance the gospel like Jesus did. Our biggest problem is not that we get sick or hungry. Our biggest problem is not even that there are demons at work out there. Our biggest problem is not our societal confusion about gender and sexuality. Our biggest problem is that sin has ruined our relationship with God. But the really good news is that God, through Jesus Christ, replaces our unrighteousness with his righteousness. That Jesus' death and resurrection opens a way between us and God. That in Jesus, God the Father is no longer angry over our sin. And he does get angry about sin. It's called wrath. It's serious. The good news is we can have peace with God because Jesus was killed and rose again. Now, the disciples didn't understand this, and I appreciate the candor in verse 32. Remember, Mark is writing this, and Mark was not one of the twelve, but we are pretty sure he got all of his information from Peter, who was one of the twelve. He was actually one of the inner three of the twelve. And so through Peter... And the Holy Spirit, obviously, Mark learns in verse 32, they did not understand the saying 
that Jesus just gave that he would be killed and rise again. And they were afraid to ask him. So the disciples didn't get it. They thought that of first importance was the worldly rule that Jesus was supposed to establish as the Messiah. They thought he was going to come and overturn Roman oppression and have a throne and the disciples were going to have big important political positions. And so they bickered about who was greatest. Misunderstandings about Christ's purpose lead to misunderstandings about our purpose. They misunderstood Christ's purpose, and therefore his death could not compute with what they thought was going to happen. And so they also misunderstood their own purpose. And they argued amongst themselves over who was the greatest, which leads to the second lesson that we'll highlight this morning. In verses 33 through 37, I'm sorry, 37. The second lesson is to be greatest, be last and least. Let's read about it starting at verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So here the disciples are, immediately after Jesus teaches them that he's going to be killed, arguing about which one of them is the greatest of all the disciples. And you can kind of picture them walking along the way, sort of talking quietly amongst themselves so Jesus won't hear what they're talking about arguing who's who's better probably it stems from the fact that jesus took three only three up on the mountain when he was transfigured back a few passages earlier and so the others might be thinking you know, might feel threatened or something i don't know what brought it about but i want to focus on jesus's teaching to them in verse 35 if anyone would be first He must be last of all and servant of all. So it would have been really easy for Jesus to just get mad at the disciples at this point. Are you kidding me? You're fighting about which one of you is the greatest? Spoiler alert, I'm the greatest. But he doesn't get mad. He's very patient and gentle with them. And he sits down and he calls them around and he just keeps teaching them. And it's interesting to note that the lesson isn't Stop trying to be great. The lesson isn't ambition is bad if you're a Christian. It's that ambition needs to be redirected. Ambition is kind of like firearms. Firearms aren't necessarily bad or good. It depends on what they're aimed at. Ambition isn't inherently good or bad. It depends on what it's aimed at. And so Jesus patiently begins to redirect their ambition redirect their understanding of what greatness actually is because they didn't understand what greatness actually was. And that makes sense to us if you'll think about it for a minute. Your definition of greatness tends to change with each life stage, doesn't it? So when you were a baby, what was greatness? What did you get praised for? Being a good eater 
and being a good sleeper. That's greatness for a baby. And then the next life stage, you get into the elementary school era, and greatness is being able to make silly noises with your armpit. That's greatness in elementary school. And then you get into your upper school grades, and the definition of greatness changes yet again. It's no longer being a good sleeper, a good eater, or making funny armpit noises. It's being cool. It's having the image of success without effort. That's greatness in the upper school. And then you get out into the real world, into adulthood, and the definition of greatness changes yet again. And it's no longer the image of success without effort, but it has to be real success. It's a successful career, family, nice home, good clean car, that sort of thing. Now, many of you may know some people who fail to transition from one stage's definition of greatness to the next. And so in high school, middle school, you remember those people who are still making silly noises with their armpits, but they're no longer considered great. And then in adulthood, there's people who still maintain, they try to shoot for greatness by seeming effortless and being cool. But it no longer seems great because it's not panning out because they're not getting promoted at work and it's not really working out for them. Years ago, I was walking from our house, the parsonage, through the old cemetery up to the church during the week. And I came into the old cemetery back there and there was a couple back there, a man and a woman. And they looked rough. I, th- I don't think the guy had on any shoes or anything. And they looked kind of dirty, like you would look after you'd been camping for a while. Um, so my first thinking was that perhaps these are homeless folks. And um, you know, I went over and talked to them. And she looked like she had been eaten up by ants or something. Just a rough-looking picture. And uh, you know, asked if they needed anything or any help, and they said they, they were trying to get a ride to a gas station or someplace so they could use a phone and get some food, and that they had a little money. They didn't need money. They just needed to get to the gas station. And I said, well, I'll take you to the gas station. And But as we talked, I kept thinking I recognized them, and I could tell they kept thinking they recognized me. And it turns out we went to high school together. But they were not in my grade, but we kind of remembered each other. And see, these, they were in the popular crowd. They were in the cool crowd. And this might come as a shock to you, but I was not in the popular crowd. I was not in the cool crowd. And the woman actually said to me, and it stuck out, she said, as we were trying to place who we were, and we said each other's names, and we kind of remembered, she actually said, I was one of the cool kids, but not anymore. And it was like they had, they had tried to hang on to the previous stage's definition of greatness, and it had betrayed them. You know, smoking pot no longer earned you any greatness. At each stage, we get a little wiser. At each stage, we understand greatness a little bit better. And from that standpoint, we look back at the previous stages, and we think, man, if I had just known then what I know now, I would, have wor- I would not have worried about the things I worried about. And I would have prioritized things completely differently. I would have pursued completely different objectives. See, what we have here is a glimpse forward to the next stage, the ultimate stage, the highest stage in the kingdom of God. And we see the truest definition of greatness 
is not even what our world thinks now, but it's humility and service. So whatever our world holds out as the definition of greatness now, we're going to find out was not right. It's, making, it's the equivalent of making silly armpit noises compared to the true definition of greatness that Jesus gives. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. True greatness is intentional lastness and leastness so that others might be first and foremost. Is putting others before and above you on purpose for their good. Instead of clamoring to the front, it's working to promote others. Instead of clamoring to the top, it's working to raise others up. That's what true greatness looks like. Jesus is such a good teacher because all of that can seem a little philosophical and a little vague. He's such a good teacher that then he gives them an immediate object lesson, starting at verse 36. Right after he taught them that, he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, that might not immediately seem clear to you, the connection between receiving a child and being last of all and servant of all. So we'll look at this pretty closely here. In Matthew's version, Jesus begins his teaching after he brings the child to his side and sort of embraces him, maybe even puts him on his lap. In Matthew, he says, you have to become like a little child to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on and talks about receiving a a child is receiving Jesus and so on. But Peter and Mark, through the Holy Spirit's inspiration, didn't include that first part about becoming like a little child. So I think that must mean that this, this part about receiving such children must be worthy of our, our focus this morning. So you can go read Matthew's version later. I'd recommend you do that this week sometime. But let's just look at what is he getting at with this child and receiving children. That word receiving means to welcome, to embrace. And he's actually physically embracing the child, it sounds like from the language of the text, as he teaches this. So I want to point out just three observations from his object lesson here for us as they relate to true greatness, pursuing greatness as Christians. True greatness requires a redirection of our ambition away from self and toward others. I think that's the first thing we ought to notice as we look at this. True greatness requires a redirection of our ambitions away from ourselves and toward others. So here the disciples have been clamoring about which one of them is the greatest and probably arguing for themselves, presenting all the reasons why, why they would be greatest. And Jesus says, just forget about yourselves and look at this child. You guys probably didn't even notice this child was in the room. But just stop all your arguing and look at this child here. Redirect your focus away from yourselves and look at this child. See, in their age and in our age, the cultural understanding of a pursuit of greatness is always self-word. It's always self-focused. 
self-improvement. If you go through the bookstores or if you flip through uh, podcasts and see the self-improvement things, you'll note that that's a common theme. It's all about understanding ourselves. If we'll understand ourselves better, we can become greater. Uh, Building better habits into our lives. If we can perfectly engineer our habits and our days, then we'll become greater. Um, mastering our bodies or our homes or our finances. If we can master these elements of ourselves and our lives, we'll be great. That's sort of the message that we get in the world. And so we have um, things that we strap to our bodies to, to track and quantify every aspect of ourselves and our lives. We track our steps, our sleeps, our caloric intake. Which, by the way, this is a total aside, but it just occurred to me as I was praying over this, that we've kind of reverted back to the baby stage of what makes people great, being good sleepers and good eaters. Okay, back to the sermon. You see podcasts with titles like Aiming True to Yourself, Body, and Life. Train Your Body to Burn Fat and Enjoy Life. See, our culture would have you believe that if you'll just focus on yourself, you need some you time, focus on yourself, and you'll be great. And Jesus says, no, I came to free you from yourself. Forget about yourself and look at this little child for a minute. All that energy that you disciples have been pouring into yourselves, trying to be great, look great, explain your greatness, promote yourselves, all that energy is good energy, but it's just is turn the wrong direction. Turn all that outward toward other people. So the first observation is that it requires a redirection of ambition away from self and toward others. The second is that true Christian greatness requires a redirection of our ambition from receiving power to receiving people. From receiving power to receiving people. So here the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest, and surely they had in mind who would have the higher rank in the political structure that Jesus was going to establish when he became king. They wanted rank and position and power. And Jesus says, in essence, forget about power for a minute and look at this little kid. Now all this has a lot of little implications has a lot of just daily life little implications. Take work, for example. What is true greatness at work? Think about your jobs or your whatever work you work on if you're retired. Jesus is saying, focus less on the tasks and the money and focus on the people instead. Some of you probably hate your jobs. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but some of you probably hate your jobs. Now, I wonder how much of that might change if you began to focus a lot more on the people than the task at hand or the money that it generates. That your job is, is one of the greatest opportunities you have to do what Jesus said, be last of all and servant of all. If we're going to figure out, well, how do I put myself last and serve people, our jobs are one of the, the most fruitful opportunities for that. Think about the little implications for our clothes, how we, how we dress and present ourselves, or, or even our vehicles and things like that. 
if we could transition our ambition from trying to look the prettiest or the best instead to thinking about the people that we're going to be presenting ourselves to. How might I dress in order to least cause a temptation for the opposite sex? How might I dress in order to make the people around me the most comfortable and feel the least ashamed if they're not able to afford the nice things? It has little implications for how we are with our friends when we start to focus less on being the funniest or the coolest or the one with the nicest house and more on listening and caring and serving the people around us. In our homes, if we focus less on my needs and my position as the man of the house or, or as the, the mom, the organizer of the house, focus less on our position and more on the people. Because true greatness is not about receiving applause and compliments and esteem, but giving applause and compliments and esteem. It's about serving. So the first two observations I wanted to point out are that true greatness involves a redirection of our ambition away from self toward others and away from power toward people. And then lastly, just adds on to those. Specifically, all of this is aimed toward powerless people, lowly, seemingly lowly people, people who can't offer any return on investment for all this energy. I think it's significant that Jesus pulls a child to the forefront to teach them about true greatness. Children had, had no rank or position in that society. No rank or position at all. They were an example of the lowliest in that society. So children, the poor, the uneducated, the disabled, the oppressed, the unwanted— That is where we channel our ambition for greatness, through service, through intentional lastness and leastness, so that we can make them first and foremost. That's the picture Jesus is giving. Putting these types of people before and above us on purpose for their good. Instead of clamoring to the front, working to promote people like this, the most vulnerable, the seemingly weakest. Instead of clamoring to the top, trying to raise up those people, the people who are less fortunate than us. Now, some of you, I was thinking about this as I was planning my sermon, and I always try to keep you specifically in mind, and I was thinking, there could be some people who feel like this is just totally irrelevant. The pursuit of greatness and ambition are just not categories of thought for for everyone. Some of us, maybe because of failures in our past, don't even feel like greatness is a factor. It's more just survival mode, even. And for you, I just want to encourage you that greatness should be on your minds. Because the truest definition of greatness is available to every single one of us. It's as close as the nearest person to you. And I think that we're going to find in the end that the greatest people were the people that we esteemed the least in this world. People that you've never, ever heard of. But people who daily, weekly, monthly are pouring their lives out in service to other people. Quietly. With no need to promote themselves. They're not posting selfies on Facebook. 
They don't have time for that because they're working tirelessly on behalf of the people around them. Now, the only way that we can be great like this is by receiving Jesus' greatness on our behalf. Jesus is the ultimate example of this. This is what he was doing when he was killed for our sins. We receive that kind of someone far better than us, greater than us, in every respect, gave up everything in order to serve us, humiliate himself on our behalf, even die for us. And we've been filled up with that kind of love, that kind of service, and now we get to just dispense that to everybody around us. I'll close just by pointing out the result of this in verse 37. Jesus taught, whoever receives one such child embraces, welcomes someone like this, someone lowly, someone without rank or position, receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now this is kind of mysterious, but if you put it in contrast with what the other way of pursuing greatness, what it gets you, I think it makes a little bit more sense. If we pursue greatness inwardly through self-promotion, self-improvement, and all of our aggressive ambition moves toward ourselves and we receive ourselves, what we end up with embracing is just ourselves. At the end of the day, we're just left with ourselves. Now, if we pursue greatness the way Jesus is describing it, by embracing the lowly, welcoming the lowly, receiving the lowly, what we'll find in our arms is not ourselves or even just those people and not even just Jesus himself, but the Father. Somehow, when we serve and love the least of these, we are directly serving and loving God himself. That's how Jesus put it in Matthew 25. And this will be the closing of the sermon. This is the last thing. I won't even comment on it. I just want to read to you Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, and we'll pray. Because Jesus is going to return. And that next stage is going to come. And we get to live in light of it now, rather than just look back with regret. And this is what it will be like. Matthew chapter 25, beginning at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, 
Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Let's pray. Father, first and foremost, I want to thank you that Jesus made the cross his main purpose. Thank you so much for sending your son, for loving us enough to send your only son to die for our sins so that if we would just believe in him and trust in him, we could have everlasting life with you. Thank you. Help us not move beyond that. Help us just to move deeper into that. Let that be our first priority, our first focus. And Lord, I ask that you would redirect any of our ambitions that are misfiring right now. Show us how in practical ways as individuals and as a church to receive people like the child your son made an example of. Lord, may we not get to the next stage and look back with regret. Lord, let us live with ambition for true greatness now in Jesus' name. Amen.